The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, as, as Nick mentioned, uh, there's going to be a review today, uh, not extensive. I am also going to talk about, um, so I will talk about every wisdom book in the Bible briefly. Um, it's going to be the end of our excursion through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's been a year. Uh, one thing I had hoped for in all these studies that we should all be encouraged to continue and read and study these books. Uh, you're never done. I'm never done. We're never done uh, with learning and growing. And so we should do that for our own edification and also our growth and maturity as a church. Um, no individual Christian and no church is ever any more mature than its understanding and grasp of God's Word. I mean, there are other things involved too, but that is the synchronon. Uh, I'm going to look at some key concepts and themes uh, that came up through our study. There will be a brief review. Then we'll see how the New Testament takes up and applies some of these themes and the concept of wisdom. And finally, I'll draw a few uh, conclusions, uh, very few conclusions, about the importance of wisdom today. Uh, so, let's see. First, I think this is the first, well, I've, it, it's been adapted and shortened, but first slide I showed back in January. Uh, wisdom, as we discovered, isn't just knowing facts or an intellectual exercise. I mean, it doesn't hurt. It does not hurt to, to know how to read, to know how to write, to know how to communicate, um, to be aware of uh, what's going on in the culture and being aware of the Bible. But wisdom uh, is, is more than just knowing facts. Uh, it's knowledge, understanding, and practice that lead towards shalom in personal community and national personal community and national life. So it ain't wisdom if it ain't headed towards shalom. You can put that on a pepper sticker. Shalom uh, Shalom is most often translated peace in the Bible and occasionally translated prosperity, although I think that's kind of an unfortunate translation. It's just there's no better alternative because um, prosperity has come to have a negative connotation, particularly with the prosperity gospel today. But shalom means much more than that anyway. It's one of those rich Hebrew words that you really can't fully understand it unless you read it in context. Uh, it refers to human life, before God and holiness, harmony, creativity, and abundant joy, what life is supposed to be, what human life was meant to be. And it's that with oneself, with others, and even with creation. There's a whole uh, subgenre of paintings, which I'll name after the one, uh, the Peaceable Kingdom paintings. Sometimes it's of the Garden of Eden, sometimes it's just a group of animals and humans in accord. So as a matter of fact, we are meant to be in harmony with creation. We aren't completely now. Um, I'm not a huge outdoorsman, but even I know that uh, nature is sometimes red in, in tooth and claw. Uh, but eventually, even with creation, the, the lamb will lie down with the lamb, the lion will lie down with the lamb, and the little baby will put its hand in a snake's hole, as Isaiah said. Um, in accordance, and this is really important, in accordance with the way God has made the world, 
Um, we, we don't want to deal with that often as human beings. Occasionally, the connection is made between shalom and what today is called human flourishing. Sometimes the terms just used offhand or ad hoc, but it does have specific connotations in psychology and sociology and even theological uh, connections. And there are certainly affinities between the word, uh, between the term human flourishing and the word shalom. Uh, but particularly if you're talking about the secular use of the word, there are some key differences. And that key difference is, is that shalom always begins, continues, and will have its consummation in God's will and purposes. In other words, you truly can't have human flourishing apart from God. It just, it's just not possible, which, of course, that's, that's the lie of the devil. We could paraphrase. Your flourishing will come about better if it's just yours. It's human flourishing. You take control of it. But that's not true. So each wisdom book contributes to our understanding of how to move toward shalom, even Ecclesiastes and Job. Uh, all these books distinctly remind us that there are limits to human wisdom in a sinful fallen world, even as we seek God's wisdom as much as we can. So a very brief review. There, there's the whole book of Proverbs in one paragraph. <laughs> so obviously you should, you should definitely read it for yourself. The book of Proverbs teaches us how to live a life well managed. There are three aspects, I didn't list them because I wanted to be brief, to Proverbs. Um, and these are three of the four aspects of wisdom. One is practical, uh, the other is moral, and the other is theological. The other is existential, and you'll get that primarily in Ecclesiastes and Job, of course. Job, I mean, Proverbs is mainly about practical and ethical or moral wisdom. The theological aspect is not absent. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's right there at the beginning. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs presents much practical wisdom, but the successful life is first and foremost the godly life, the righteous life, which relies on the Lord and does not stray from the path of righteousness. One of the, the dominating motifs in Proverbs is the idea of the two paths. There's the path of wisdom and there's the path of foolishness, and as the great theologians, uh, Led Zeppelin, so aptly put it, yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And there is, although it's not wise to stray from the path of righteousness and wisdom. In the book of Job, Job is almost a, yeah, really, kind of rebuke to Proverbs, but not exactly. That's a hyperbolic statement. The book of Job examines the meaning of human suffering, the justice, sovereignty, and purposes of God, and the proper human response to God. That's what it's about in and of itself. And the other way to look at it is, while the book of Proverbs acknowledges exceptions to the rules of wisdom, in Proverbs there is injustice, sometimes the righteous don't prosper, uh, sometimes the wicked succeed, um, in general, the book of Proverbs says if you do this, this is what will happen. And all things being equal, it's actually much better to follow wisdom than not follow wisdom. Uh, and sometimes, though, uh, it depends on the society and the culture, and sometimes things are not always equal, as we well know. So Proverbs does admit some exceptions to the rules, quote-unquote, of wisdom. Well, let me digress there, because one thing I did say that I don't have up there is that, that Proverbs are not laws. Uh, they aren't do this, and this will automatically happen. Neither it is magic. Um, one of the best-known examples is that proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. First of all, that's an observation that as we say, the apple don't fall far from the tree. Your children will be most like 
you are than anything else. Um, but we all know, well, I don't know if we all know, I knew because I was a teacher in middle school and then high school for many years, there are exceptions to that rule on both sides. I've met wonderful kids who had terrible parents and I've met terrible kids who have wonderful parents. But as a matter of fact, all things being equal, if you want your child to be a certain way, train them young and they will be that way. But that's not a law, it's more of, well, as uh, Barbarossa said in Pirates of the Caribbean, they're more like guidelines, okay? The book of Job, on the other hand, confronts us with the hard limits of wisdom. This far your proud wave shall go and no farther, where human understanding fails. We cannot discern God's ways and God's purposes completely. Um, and the, the world is full of the shipwrecks of people who thought they could, um, or when they were confronted with this, they rejected God. Um, I won't mention his name, but I had a speaker once in one of my senior Bible classes when I was teaching at a local Christian school, who is an atheist. We brought him, I brought him in to, I got permission to bring to, to discuss the, uh, the atheist worldview in contrast to the Christian worldview and why he'd become an atheist. And he, he mainly focused on what atheists do focus on, uh, the, the irrationality of Christianity. And he said a lot of things about what Christians believe and this and that, which the, the, the kids were just kind of staring at them and sort of looking at me because they knew a lot of that stuff he was saying that I didn't necessarily believe that stuff. I'm, I'm an Orthodox Christian, but he was talking more about a hyper-fundamentalist Christian. What he didn't mention is that he had had a, I knew this, because um, I talked to him, he, he had a strong, almost fundamentalist Baptist upbringing, uh, and his wife had died. And he never mentioned that in his reasons. And uh, usually behind every, uh, every child brought up in the faith who becomes an atheist, there's a, there's a story of something they were confronted with that sort of negated everything they felt, negated everything they had been told. And one of those things is when you're told, well, if you just obey the rules, everything will turn out all right. Well, Job says, no. No, it won't. But that doesn't mean God is not there. Anyway, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes teaches that life under the sun, that is, without reference to transcendent reality or life beyond this life, can never yield lasting fulfillment or meaning. I've read and reread Ecclesiastes over and over again and read... Lots of commentary, some good, some bad, and indifferent. If you want to read one academic commentary, uh, as I've mentioned before, I really do recommend Dwayne Garrett's. Uh, he did three books. He did Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. And it's, it's, it's brief enough, it's academic without being pedantic, and it really is a very good commentary. He did not pay me to say that. and. I, he might remember me, but we're not like buds or anything. Uh, but if you were going to read one academic commentary on Ecclesiastes, I would recommend that one. But over the years, as I've read these things, I thought, well, maybe I got it wrong, because I came to the conclusion a long time ago that what Ecclesiastes was saying was exactly that. Nothing you do in this life with regards to achievement, power, play, nothing has ultimate meaning or will ultimately fulfill you. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of commentators and scholars quibble about that and try to find something else is about is they simply don't want to accept that. All human endeavor in the face of eternity is ultimately fruitless. All human endeavor. That's a hard message to escape. 
Uh, I mean, it's a hard message to deal with, but it can't be escaped. Um, C.S. Lewis said, uh, history, I'm paraphrasing, but he did say it, uh, history is the long, sad story of men trying to find anything that will make them happy apart from God. And so, of course, it's a dismal failure. Now, that's true of that's true of uh, humanity corporately, nations and communities, and it's true individually. I have to digress a little bit because then I got to say, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do stuff because sometimes doing stuff is fun. Like I wouldn't do it now because unlike John Glenn, I don't have previous training, but for years and years and years, you know, I thought, you know, if they ever asked me if I wanted to be the first theology student in space, I'd do that. Not because I think it's any great achievement, just because I think it's really cool. Like, you know, like little boys, they like dinosaurs because they're really cool. Because they are really cool. Um, and so there's lots of things you can life that you can find immediate enjoyment and even what's called local meaning. It, it will get you up in the morning, but it will never gain you eternity. God has set longing for eternity in our hearts, but we can never gain eternity. And I mean not, not just in the temporal sense, but in, in the meaning sense. There is no eternal meaning through anything we do, not fame, fortune, achievement, power, pleasure, or work. What God in this life require of us is that we fear God and keep his commandments. And elsewhere, Solomon says in that book, the best thing you can do in life is, you know, fear God and keep his commandments and then enjoy life as you can. And this isn't to say there isn't enjoyment in life. And particularly as a Christian, we, we ought to, you know, take pretty much everything that happens lightly, whether it's sorrow or achievement. I don't mean be callous, but I mean uh, don't try and grasp anything of this life in your hand too hard. Finally, and we just finished up with this last week, so you'll all remember this, I'm sure. Um, the Song of Solomon is a love song. Uh, it, it, not an allegory. I said that. Um, thought about that, too, over the years. Um, never really thought it was an allegory. If, if, you, if you get the, the Christian calendar version of this, it, it's almost always taking verses out of context and, and having been said by a devotional uh, person in devotion to Jesus or God. I actually don't think there's anything wrong with doing that in your personal devotions. I think if uh, anything between you and God using Scripture is, well, between you and God, what I do take a session is, is then if you decide that is the public meaning of it, that is what Solomon meant. Putting it on a calendar for sale is a public meaning. And it really isn't. It's a love song about exactly what it seems to be about. The delight, excitement, and joy of a romantic, sensual, and intimate relationship between a lover and his beloved. And yes, I'll admit that this is really a great message for young people, but you know, I don't know, I don't I want to be too uh, crass or anything, but unless you're dead on your bed, you know, this is a message for, for every man and woman who are married. To someone of the opposite sex for life. So it's not an allegory about God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. It does teach that beyond its own delight, uh, true romance, there is such a thing, true romance and sexual intimacy are reminders that the heart of existence is relationship and love. Now, I mentioned the, the dangers of trying to sexualize God. God is not sexed or gendered, nor should we ever describe God in human sexual terms. On the other hand, God created sexual intimacy, and that says something about who God is. Every part of creation says something about the Creator, and I think that's the key to it. The heart of existence is relationship and love, and it's not coincidental that that's who God is. God is an eternal relationship and love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before I move on, and quickly, I'm liable if I'm not careful to end early here, does anybody have any questions about 
anything about any of the Old Testament books uh, before I go on to the New Testament. Because a few things, and I won't tell you which few things, are, are still controversial. Yes, Anne? So when was the switch, like, um, Colleen was talking about Spurgeon last week. Right. Had the dip, so what is the, like, what sort of triggered the new understanding? Well, it's one of the, one of the well, not only thing, but one of the few things that, that one could say modern uh, critical studies of the Bible came to the conclusion of. If you actually read uh, the Song of Song as it is and don't simply accept traditional interpretation. So it, it was allegory for, gee, gee, thousands of years if you include Jewish interpretation. And that's because like Ecclesiastes, which is such a hard truth to faith, face and people keep looking for different meanings. Uh, you know, Song of Solomon is kind of embarrassing. You know, well, why would God want to talk about sex? Well, because he created it. And, and, and you have to admit, I, if, if you're tending toward an allegory, he said, well, if God were going to write a book about sexual intimacy, and I'm speaking of God as the ultimate author, then, yeah, this would be the way to do it. It's, I would call it a delicate eroticism. Uh, and it is romance and poetry. But um, the history of interpretation, I would say that beginning probably late 18th century, um, actually beginning with the Reformation, but really getting started, uh, the move came away from allegory. Um, and now I have I read a few articles in preparing for this that said, well, you know, maybe it is our allegory. I think one Christian and one Jewish. So I wouldn't say there's a comeback, but there's still people who want to, because they won't accept that there's this book in the Bible that's all about human sexuality, which it is. I, I just think the way you deal with that is like, well, it's not the only book in the Bible. It's not the Kama Sutra which I haven't read, by the way, but I do know it's the textbook of Hinduism. That's, that's all I know. Um, uh, you know just, yeah, anyway. Um, but it is an honest expression of a very large aspect of human life, and frankly, if we treated sexuality that way in culture and society, we would be a lot better off. That's why I think it's wisdom literature and why Dwayne Garrett is that is one thing that's somewhat controversial um, most academicians will kind of nod at and say yeah maybe it's got some wisdom aspects um, I think it is a wisdom book because it talks very wisely about one of the biggest things about human life um, just because it isn't an allegory, again, this is, this is what systematic theology is about. The whole Bible, just like the whole Bible is about Christ, the whole Bible says something about God. So I can ask of, I mean, I could develop this more. I only said a few things when we did it and fewer things today. I, I could say a whole lot of things that Song of Solomon says about God, because every part of the Bible says something about God, but it says it in context with the whole scripture. That's why, again, you cannot elsewhere, but just for an example, so there were a couple of commentaries I read, who I will, I will not name, but who wanted to say that there was, uh, well, one said there was an affinity between Jesus Christ and Lady Wisdom but then elsewhere he said, you know, that even in the context of Proverbs, lady wisdom was, was basically being projected as Yahweh, the Lord. And I said, absolutely not. No, no Old Testament book would ever. They, they might attribute a characteristic usually said of women to God, like Jesus said, for example, uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, uh, how I would like to have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen, but you would have nothing to do with that. So there is an attribute 
typically spoken of as feminine, that's attributed to Jesus Christ. Similar things happen in the Old Testament, but never, nowhere, is God ever equated to a woman. Now, that might sound sexist, but then if you knew the history of Canaanite and Mesopotamian and even Egyptian religions, you would know that uh, emphasis on, on the goddess aspects of divinity always, without, without exception, leads to the sexualizing of God and transcendent reality. So, did that make sense? So, no, that's wrong. Um, uh, Lady Wisdom is not Yahweh in Proverbs. Lady Wisdom (coughs) is a personification of wisdom. Now, having said that, I'll I'll get to something related to that. Um, That, again, was not just a yes or no question. I mean, a yes or no answer, Ann, but that, that helped your... Answer. Anybody have any other questions about uh, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, or Song of Solomon? Well, let's talk about how the New Testament takes up some of these themes. So the New Testament takes the themes of wisdom disclosed and developed in the Old Testament and expresses them in many ways. One of the biggest ones, of course, is Christ is the wisdom of God. But even that can be taken in a couple of different ways. Uh, So, um, first of all, the Apostle Paul contrasts merely human wisdom with the wisdom of God and the preaching of the gospel and the message of the cross, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24. It seems to me I've heard this recently somewhere. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. No, it was Colossians that was read this morning. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Paul is being hyperbolic. He does not mean the sacrifice of Christ was foolish. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The height and the power of God's wisdom is seen in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The gospel. Paul also emphasizes the importance of spiritual wisdom in the life of the church. He tells the saints in Ephesus that he remembers them in his prayers and keeps asking that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In like manner, he tells the church at Colossae, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding and assures them that he is admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Finally, Paul encourages the believers there to let the word of Christ dwell in you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The emphasis is primarily on corporate life. The wisdom is necessary for a church to grow in Christ, to be mature, as well as being important in the life of an individual believer. So the epistle of James um, parallels the Old Testament books in its encouragement to seek wisdom from God and live wisely. Now, I'm not going to... There's There's... Lots of talk about how James and Paul seem to be contrary to one another in their understanding of the gospel. They're not, but that isn't my point here, so I won't really go into that. 
I'll sum up uh, much of what he has to say about wisdom is in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. And here this kind of echoes what Paul says elsewhere. Uh, knowledge, love edifies, but knowledge puffs up. There is simply more to wisdom than knowing things. Then James says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder in every evil practice. You find unwisdom, even anti-wisdom, even though that is the, quote, wisdom of this world, unquote. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, James says, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So this idea of the importance of wisdom in the life of the church is really emphasized, particularly in Paul and James, but throughout the New Testament. Uh, Most significantly, the New Testament connects Jesus with wisdom. So if you read through the Gospels, there are some specific Instances, and I'll mention them, but the Gospels as a whole, uh, as we're leading up to the Passion and we're looking at Jesus' ministry of, of preaching and teaching and healing, we see his, the miraculous aspects of it, his, his signs that in effect are claims to his divinity and his redeemership, but you also see him as being a, a, an incomparably wise man. Uh, the Gospels present Jesus as the incomparable man of wisdom, one greater than Solomon, which is Jesus' description of his own self in Matthew twelve forty two. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven twenty four through 7, Jesus alludes to Proverbs 9, which talks about the divergence of the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness, when he compares those who hear and practice his teaching with building a house on rock and those who don't with building on sand, reminiscent of that comparison between following the ways of lady wisdom or the woman folly and the consequences of each choice. If you build on sand, as every architect and contractor knows, your house is going to fall. In 7, at that last verse, 727, Matthew records that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now, that's not meant to be a really disparaging remark about teachers of the law. They get disparaged elsewhere for trying to trick and trap Jesus. But, but teachers of the law... <laughs> That's my granddaughter. Uh, Teacher of the law would seldom say anything on their own authority, just like I don't hear. It's, it's sort of the academic ways of doing things. If you've ever uh, written a thesis or a dissertation, you know, you can't say anything affirmative unless you have a long list of people who are smarter and older than you that already said the same thing. I'm exaggerating slightly to make a point, but not much. So that's what the teachers would do, as rabbi so-and-so said, or as rabbi thus-and-such said, as it is written that, as, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus didn't do that. Uh, And at one point he says, you've heard it said, but I say. You know, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, you know, even if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you know, do not murder. But I say to you, even if you're angry at your brother or sister, and some, some, some manuscripts uh, seem to have without cause, uh, you know, you're basically guilty of the same thing. He, he ratchets up 
the requirements of the law from what people thought, outward externals, to the inner heart on his own authority. And so he taught as one who had authority. Uh, and that is greater than Solomon. Uh, especially in Paul's letters, the New Testament points to Jesus as the source of wisdom. Uh, the Christ in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Colossians 2, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. In his comparison, as I read before, between the message of the cross and the wisdom of the world in 1 Corinthians, in verse 24, Paul points to Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom in the Old Testament now comes to fulfillment in Christ, who not only is wise, he embodies wisdom and is the source of wisdom. So what that means is that both John and Paul explicitly and, and in the rest of the New Testament implicitly uh, bespeak Jesus Christ as wisdom incarnate. Uh, John doesn't use the term uh, wisdom in his gospel. He doesn't want to call Jesus wisdom because the Greek word is feminine. It's Sophia. Uh, his designation of Christ is the logos, but not only would most Jews, but all the Greeks and philosophers would understand that. Logos was the the rational principle of the world. It was the wisdom of the world in so many words. John describes Christ as the Logos, the Word of God made flesh. And this has affinities with description of wisdom role in creation as described in Proverbs uh, chapter 8, last half of chapter 8, it talks about wisdom being the first of God's creation, participating with him in creation, and being the craftsman at his side, delighting in his work. So in, in John's gospel, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it, it might be too much to say that John is knowingly alluding to Proverbs 9, but that it has affinities with that passage I think are undeniable, as with Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, uh, one of our passages in the readings today. So Paul there writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers <coughs> or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in all things hold together. It's not that, again, that, that Yahweh or even Jesus Christ uh, are said to be Lady Wisdom. It's that in the New Testament, Christ sort of takes up that personification of wisdom, but it's clear that he is more than a personification. Lady Wisdom in Proverbs is a literary device a way to somehow not make a distinction, but a differentiation within God's uh, omnipotent sovereignty and his wisdom in creation. And in Christ, they're joined, and he really is that. He's not just a personification. So in the person of Jesus Christ, wisdom <coughs> came to dwell with us, and he will come again in the fullness of his kingdom and of wisdom and shalom. Um, True and complete shalom won't occur in, in, this, in this life, in, in the time between the fall and the full redemption of creation. But in seeking to follow Christ, that's how we aim at shalom. I'll actually get to that point in another minute. So, uh, 
actually about another 30 seconds. We could continue this study for nearly another year uh, if you were up for it, and if we looked at specific and timely applications of wisdom. You can apply biblical wisdom and a biblical understanding in areas of family and education, in work and business, and in politics. Uh, but I'm just going to close by pointing in a couple of directions. So as I said back in January, long ago and far away, if you recall, we live in a culture that does not value wisdom or virtue or righteousness. As a matter of fact, it seems to value anti-wisdom. I'm not going to spend any time analyzing the culture or its many examples of unwisdom and anti-wisdom. We did that on, at the Wednesday night uh, Bible study. I mean, the primary example was the foolishness of transgenderism, but we brought up other things too. Um, and I say this not to be totally negative about culture. As a matter of fact, that's one of the sad things about the anti-wisdom of this culture is that we are divesting ourselves and destroying the heritage of Western civilization. Um, and there are things in Western civilization worth preserving. Main thing I just want to say is uh, we need wisdom to navigate where we are now uh, and where we will find ourselves in the future, both as individuals. Uh, well, there's not a word for three. Individuals, church, and, and as a culture. Um, and I don't have any secrets to uh, how can we change the trajectory of the culture. Um, Particularly as believers, we need to insist, and, and I do mean insist, it should be, can be brought up in conversations where it can be brought up, but it certainly needs to, to be the core of the church. Uh, so we need to insist to ourselves and to our culture that the Bible is as relevant today as it was when it was written, and its wisdom literature is more important than ever. Uh, I, I would argue... Um, not the only thing, but one of the main things that we need if we're going to have cultural new is biblical wisdom. So the idea that biblical wisdom is out of date, that we have become too mature, sophisticated, and rational for such an ancient, unscientific perspective, and that, that attitude occurs not just out in the secular culture, but in some parts of the church. Uh, that attitude is not only sad, but it's ironically tragic. Um, foolishness is, as well as wisdom is known by her deeds, and the trajectory of human civilization seems anything but sophisticated, scientific, or even rational at some points. And again, you can supply some of your own examples of that. Finally, 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 uh, let me give a brief description of the wise person today. Um, and everything said here could, could be uh, proven and validated uh, by the wise use of Scripture. So I'll just say them, and you can cut that out and put it on your refrigerator. That's, that's, if you don't do anything else in this class, you can cut that last paragraph out put it on your refrigerator. So the wise person today, first and foremost, fears God and follows Jesus Christ in faith. If someone says they fear God, and they really do, and are not yet following Jesus Christ in faith, well, as Jesus said of people like that, they are not far from the kingdom of heaven, <clears throat> and you should pray for them. But particularly in today's context, it's gone, it's gone from pro-Christian to neutral to being anti-Christian and Western culture, North American and European is pretty much post-Christian at this point. Um, so it's, it's not possible to be truly wise without fearing God and following Jesus Christ. Second, the wise person today knows and understands Scripture. <coughs> It's not recent, as a matter of fact, I've, I've noticed it for, for decades now that there's a high level of biblical illiteracy. Uh, and that, I mean, this is cross-denomination. 
people just don't know what the Bible actually says. And sometimes if they know some of it, they don't fully understand it. There is enough clarity, per, per, perpiscuity is the technical term in scripture for salvation for an eight-year-old child or a seven-year-old child, however. But that doesn't mean like everything, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna assign, uh, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes to a, to a eight or nine-year-old and tell them, well, go ahead and figure out what this says. Uh, there are things that are hard to understand. Even Peter said of Paul, you know, he writes things that are difficult to understand that people twist to their own e ends. So we need to not just know it, we need to understand it. We need to see him or herself with genuine humility, which I admit I have a hard time with sometimes. I always remember that. Who was that that sang that song, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way? What? Anyway, um, it really is important to exercise humility. Um, someone who can interpret culture and understand the time. So, I mean, what's going on? Um, to be mature, I mean, if you read Paul and you read some of the other letters, he doesn't really specifically analyze the Roman Empire, but it's clearly there in the background. And he is speaking to it, particularly, for example, in the first chapter of Romans. Um, and they understand the secular culture around them, and they understand uh, the culture of the church. But we, we need to understand the times. What, what is going on in this time? Doesn't mean we can necessarily predict the future or that we are prophets, but we need to understand so we can respond properly. Next, a wise person sees what is certain and what remains a mystery. Um, if you read much, quote, postmodern essays, literature, unquote, uh, you'll come across the idea that everything is uncertain. You can't know anything with certainty. And to say you know something with certainty, well, that's just intolerant. Because if you say this is true, you're saying somebody else is wrong. And to that I say, yes, I am. And you seem to be pretty certain that you're right, too. Um, there are things that are certain. Otherwise, Luke wouldn't have said in his prologue to his gospel, I write these things to you, O Theophilus, that you may be certain of the things you have been taught. There are certain things, and particularly for Christians. Uh, Jesus Christ lived, died, truly died, and was truly raised from the dead for our sins. Uh, it, the world is a creation. This is a certain. But there are certain things that remain a mystery. How does the atonement work exactly? I mean, I'm a basic uh, believer in the substitutionary theory of atonement, but even, even that, it's like, okay, how exactly does that work? But it works, and there is no other way to be redeemed and to be reunited with God. So... There is a such a thing as mystery, but even that's not as mysterious as some people want to make it to be. And I am certain that the gospel is true. A wise person suffers wisely. That's probably one of the toughest things. That's what we learn in Job, but even to a certain extent in Ecclesiastes. Suffering wisely does not obviously mean grin and bear it all the time. One wise thing I read in one of the books I read is that... Uh, God is okay if your complaint, if you're talking to him about your situation. What's not okay is if you're complaining about him uh, to yourself or others. So uh, lamentations and many of the lament psalms uh, really take this up. That's why even though there are, there are a few psalms that are... are uh, specifically wisdom psalms, I think all of it teaches us to be wise in our approach to God. God wants, uh, above all, for you to be honest with him. Uh, and also importantly, the wise person is always growing in wisdom, so you're never done. So we're not done. So I would like you all to go out and, you know, right now you need to go ahead and reread 
Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And then we'll do this all again next year. No, I'm not kidding. I believe uh, Todd Weedman will be teaching uh, one of the New Testament books in January. Anyway, that's all I've got. Nothing great. Uh, does anybody have any questions? I think we might be a little over time. Oh, shoot. And I thought I was going to be brief. Sure. Uh, John? You mentioned earlier there was a little bit of a difference in the way James and Paul sort of looked at it. And my question was, right. were they in any way studying each other at the time, or did they know what each other was Oh, reading? gosh. I, I, I would really have no idea. I would think, but I have no way of knowing, that James would have been familiar with Paul. The best explanation I've heard using an illustration, it's not really an explanation, is that um, Paul and James are protecting the same thing, the gospel, from different directions. So, you know, Paul, of course, had to deal with the so-called Judaizers who basically want to say you have to be Jewish, get circumcised, obey all the Jewish laws to be a Christian. And then there was another group saying, I don't have to do anything. I just have to nod my head and, you know, say Jesus is the Christ, and that's cool. I can live my life however I please. Neither one of those things is true. And so I think you need to understand who James is writing for and why he's writing. Um, and then the only other thing I'd say in resolving that is like, so faith always issues and works, if it is and isn't faith. But um, actually, I think it was J.D. Koch who mentioned this to me. If, if your faith seems to be absent works, the, the solution is not, is, to, is not to increase your works. It's, it's to have real faith. And so I find that to be, those to be useful resolutions of the seeming conflict between Paul and James. And I would say they are paradoxical. Not fully, though, because I think they can be resolved. So that helps answer your question. Any other questions for the good of the cause? Um, okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Um,